June 1st, 2023, day one of the Atlantic hurricane season, and Mother Nature knew it. The first day of the Atlantic hurricane season was yesterday, and like clockwork, yesterday, Tropical Depression 2 developed in the Gulf of Mexico. We may not look back at this past season as a highly active one, but there were certainly moments that stood out. Hillary is now a powerful Category 4 storm with winds of 145 miles an hour. Storms that made history. This is the most intense hurricane to hit the Big Bend area of Florida since the late 1800s. So it goes way back. And moments that caught us off guard. Parts of Acapulco are in ruins after Hurricane Otis slammed into the Mexican city. That building is completely destroyed. And with the new hurricane season came a new leader in the National Hurricane Center. Even if it's an otherwise quiet season, there can still be impactful storms. There can still be major hurricane landfalls. Today, I'm going off the radar to look back at the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season with Dr. Mike Brennan, the director of the National Hurricane Center. We'll talk about the noteworthy storms of the year, the new forecasting and communication tools being used, and the successes and struggles of the past six months. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you're listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Uh, Dr. Mike Brennan, thanks so much for joining us today. This is a great honor. And we spoke back in May, kind of before the season got started. So it's great to get back together and kind of recap how things went over the past few months. And it's hard to believe it's already almost over, end of November here. So let's look back at the season. I think the big standout for everyone, obviously, is Idalia, because that was the big one that made landfall. But there was a lot of other stuff kind of churning offshore this year, right? Yeah, it was actually a really busy season. You know, we've got 20 named storms, seven hurricanes, three major hurricanes. But for the United States, at least, it was somewhat quieter. I mean, we did have a major hurricane landfall with, with Adalia. Uh, we had you know, Harold make landfall in Texas. Ophelia had impacts on the East Coast as a tropical storm that made landfall in North Carolina. We had Lee uh, affect New England and Atlantic Canada. Uh, but but the rest of the the majority of the activity, at least, uh, other than those storms, was a little farther east this year. We didn't have much in the Caribbean. We didn't have much in the Gulf other than Harold and Adalia. So that's been a big change from what we've seen the last several years you know, with multiple Gulf Coast hurricane landfalls. Uh, but again, we had a lot of systems that developed farther east in the Atlantic and then recurved. Uh, and we also had a lot of systems that sort of struggled intensity-wise this year with 20 named storms and only seven becoming hurricanes. That means we had you know, 13 systems that never got to hurricane strength, uh, which is a little smaller than the, the usual proportion you'd expect. But it was also a busy season in the Pacific, too. We had Hillary 
uh, impacting Southern California, you know, very, very heavy rainfall at a time of the year when you don't have any rainfall typically in Southern California, you know, five to 10 inches of rain in some places, a very impactful storm there. Then multiple hurricane landfalls in Mexico, especially later in the season with Lydia and Otis. So a uh, busy year all around. Yeah. And maybe it's me just being an East Coaster, but this seems new and unusual, these these Pacific storms making landfall. Is that noteworthy of this year as well? Well, I think it was noteworthy that we had a, a sort of a cluster of them late in the season. They tend to be early and late in the season to to make landfall in Mexico. You know, sort of the middle of the season, the, the storms tend to move more west-northwest to the south of the big subtropical ridge. But early and late in the season, the storms tend to recurve more, you know, if they form farther east and, and can impact Mexico. But you know, certainly Lydia and Otis were two of the four or five strongest hurricanes to ever make landfall in Mexico. And they happened within the span of just a couple of weeks of each other. So that that in itself was was quite unusual. Did it have anything to do with El Nino? Well, El Nino tends to, you know, make conditions in the East Pacific more favorable. Waters could have been a little warmer, uh, you know, so certainly that's that could have been a factor. But again, you know, we've seen you know, that's a breeding ground for pretty powerful hurricanes. There's a lot of deep, warm water off the West Coast of Mexico. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty pretty active uh, region, especially as you get into October, that tends to be the pattern is storms forming farther east near Mexico and, and potentially affecting them directly there. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so back in May, we, we you were talking about a lot of the new stuff that was coming out this year, some changes for the 2023 season. So I kind of want to go through some of those and see how things went, if they went well, if they went okay, if there are things to learn from each of these. So let's start with the P-Surge model. You were talking a lot about that and the benefit of multiple storms and being able to issue um, during multiple storms. How did that go this year? Well, we didn't actually end up needing to use that piece of it in 2023. We didn't have multiple you know, storms threatening the United States that that had the, the need for storm surge guidance. But it, it certainly we did use it a lot during Adalia. And there were benefits beyond just the multiple storm scenarios. It allowed us to start running P-Surge earlier in advance of the system, providing additional real-time storm surge information, especially for a storm like a Dahlia that is hitting a, you know, a very vulnerable location in terms of storm surge, maybe one of the, the most vulnerable there along the Florida Big Bend Coast. So it allowed us to get that guidance out there earlier, help refine our forecast. So you know we were able to pretty much highlight that area that got the, the most uh, significant inundation from the very first uh, you know storm surge forecast we put out you know more than a couple of days before landfall. So that was very beneficial. Uh, but yeah, it, it does give us that ability to 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 do multiple storms at once. It also allowed us to expand some of the storm surge products to Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands as well. Uh, can you explain, can you go back for those who may not understand why that part of Florida, that big bend of Florida is so vulnerable to storm surge? Yeah, well, the Gulf Coast in general is very vulnerable to surge because it has a very shallow, you know, sloping continental shelf that allows the water to pile up uh, as it's pushed on land by the winds of the hurricane, but in particular, the concave shape of the Big Bend allows that uh, energy and that water to really pile up into those areas. And it goes very far inland as well, or at least has the potential to go. It's not just like right at the beach or the barrier islands. It can go tens of miles inland away from the Gulf of Mexico, and it can put a lot of people at risk. So it's a, it's a very vulnerable location. And again, you don't need a major hurricane in that part of the world to get life-threatening storm surge. It can be a slow-moving, big, even tropical storm can produce, you know, three, four, five feet of inundation. And in Andalia, we saw some areas that had more than 10 feet. Yeah. And wasn't it still a major hurricane when it got to Georgia? 
and it was a major hurricane, but it, it was a hurricane. I think is it is it you know we'll look at the final best track, but it made landfall as a category three. Uh, tends to weaken pretty quickly, but we did have hurricane warnings up through parts of North Florida into Georgia, and then you know we had uh, impacts along the East Coast as well, uh, all the way up into the Carolinas from wind, storm surge, heavy rainfall. So. Yeah, they're not just coastal events, especially those Gulf Coast landfalling storms could end up being really impactful for the southeast U.S., not just necessarily along the coast, but also areas well inland can get significant impacts from wind or rain as well. Yeah, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. I feel like we're always in the cone no matter where there's a landfall. East Coast, Gulf Coast, right. Yeah, you can get them coming from both directions. And then sometimes people underestimate the ones that, that make landfall on the Gulf Coast. They think, oh, it's over there. But you know, in terms of some of the impacts, especially the inland parts of the southeast and even mid-Atlantic states, the Gulf Coast storms can be even worse than, than you know, storms that make landfall along the, the, the east coast. Um, OK, so what about this um, advanced notice when it comes to these potential systems? Everybody kind of looks at the blobs on the website and yeah. now it goes out to seven days, correct, instead of just five. How's that going as far as like accuracy? I think it went well this year. We haven't done all of our statistics in terms of the reliability of VOR because it's a probabilistic product. So you know, we're giving a, a formation probability over the next seven days. But you know, for some storms like Hillary, we were able to identify the potential for Hillary to form seven, you know, more than seven days in advance. So uh, for storms where we have a lot of confidence, we can put them in the outlook. I think Hillary went into the high category for formation potential five days before it formed. Uh, so that's a that's an example of how that product can provide additional lead time. That's not it's not always going to be that way though. The storm that became the system that became a Dahlia, we only introduced into the outlook about three plus days before it formed, so it wasn't as predictable. But for the sort of bigger, uh, you know, kind of classical deep tropical systems, uh, yeah, we did have uh, it seemed like a little more lead time for those this year. We'll look at what the statistics show. But yeah, the outlook got pretty busy. There were times when there were four, five, six systems in there. When you're covering that broader week-long time frame, you're going to get a lot of systems in there, particularly at the peak of the season. Yeah, it's always kind of a relief when the whole map is blank. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, and we got into to early November. I think we got into a situation where we were really had a blank map for seven days for the first time in, in months. So it, you know. That's the other thing, too, is there's going to be more systems in there with a longer time horizon, not just all at once, but as you go sequentially through their formation chances. So that the, the, the amount of time you have a blank outlook or what we call a one liner is, is gone down because we're looking at a longer time horizon for formation. Right, right. All the more special. Um, OK, now this is something maybe people didn't even notice this year, but you removed the watch warnings and advisories from that forecast advisory product, correct? Right. And I'm guessing that that was just kind of a something that flew under the radar. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it 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 was sort of a historical carryover of how the products were created. But the the the, the forecast advisory is really a, has now become like a data product. It's where the forecast data sits, and and that's where people parse it out of to create graphics and and extract information from. But we still have this legacy inclusion of land based watches and warnings, sort of at the top of that product. Uh, so we decided to to sort of you know, simplify things and take that out of that product and, and leave it only in the public advisory, which is really meant to be read and to, for people to pull information out of about watches, warnings, and hazards. Uh, but I think this year it did help us get the forecast advisory out sooner because in some situations we were waiting for last minute watch warning decisions to be made or, or sort of tweaks. And when that was happening, if it was in both products, we had to wait and send them both at the same time. Uh, if it's only in the public advisory, it allows us to get the forecast out a little bit sooner, maybe just a few minutes sooner. But that 
helps our partners in the media and emergency managers to get all that information out there to the public faster. So that was uh, one reason why we did that this year. Every year, it seems like the cone gets a little bit narrower. And if you look back at, you know, like a cone from Hurricane Hugo, uh, it's obvious, you know, um, that there has been a major change. Has it been adjusted this year? Well, the cone, yeah, we, we do it every year based on the, because the cone size is based on the track forecast errors from the previous five years. So we update it every year. So, you know, in 2023, the cone was based on the, the track forecast errors from 2022 back to 21, 20, 19, 18, 17. And uh, so it did get a little smaller, although the changes were almost in the noise and not really noticeable. And then in 2024, 2017 will drop out and then we'll add 2023. So um, it looks like the track forecast errors actually went up a fair bit in 2023. It was a challenging season for forecasting tracks. So the cone will probably get a little bigger in 2024, uh, which is sort of a, a, a change in the previous trend. But you know, the, the overall trend for long term is certainly downward in terms of track forecast error. But um, again, that's why we tell people the cone is just telling you where the center of the storm is likely to go. It's not telling you anything about the hazard. So it's just one sort of piece of information. But uh, but it's not the whole story. And that's that's why we have to have people look at things beyond that and pay especially attention to the watches and warnings. Yeah. And I noticed you guys have really been pushing the importance of paying attention to the storm surge warning. Is that being yeah. kind of the gold standard for this is the worst case scenario? Do you yeah. feel that that message has gone across to the public? I think so. I, you know, I hope so. You know, we had a we had a major hurricane make landfall in the United States in a very storm surge prone area and had no storm surge fatalities with the Dahlia. So I think that's a that's a success story there. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, people will say, well, that wasn't the most populated part of Florida. And that's certainly true. But there are tens of thousands of people that live in the three hardest hit counties, Dixie, Taylor and Levy, that live in storm surge vulnerable areas. So they were still an effective evacuation. People got out. There were not a large number of post-storm rescues where people had to go in and you know, people had to go in and help people get out of the storm surge evacuation zone after the surge came in. So I think from a, you know, a hurricane enterprise, from the meteorology to the communication, the emergency management aspect of it, broadcast meteorologist aspect of it, to get that word out, I think it was a pretty effective, effective storm. And we have seen an overall decline in storm surge fatalities over the last few years, despite, you know, multiple major hurricane landfalls. So we like to think that that some of that is due to the increased messaging and the explicit focus on that storm surge hazard in the storm surge warning. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that um, my phone like went off crazy. Everybody in Charleston, their phones went off at like 5 a.m. that morning with the storm surge warning and scared us all out of bed. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's that is one of the benefits of the storm surge warning is it does activate the wireless emergency alert. Uh, so it does, you know, it gets to everybody in that region and says, Hey, this is something you need to pay attention to. So it, so everybody with a phone or smartphone at least is going to, is going to see that delivered directly to them if they have this turned on. Yeah. It comes across the same way like a tornado warning would. Right. What about the live streams that you guys were doing on YouTube and on social media? How, how did that go? Is there, are you figuring out the consistency there? I know we were trying to do that too. And it was definitely hard to kind of keep up with. Yeah, I think yeah, I think they've been pretty successful. They sort of allow us to get out ahead of uh, the messaging for a particular system. Yeah, yeah, I think we've sort of settled into a cadence of typically doing them about once a day. Uh, you know, farther out in time from a potential threat. But in some ways, it's just a way to signal to everybody on social media that say, "Hey, this is something the Hurricane Center wants you to pay attention to." So we, it's not something we do every day, or even for every storm. Or but but for the bigger events where we know people are going to need to to take action and, and pay attention. 
Uh, it's a it's a pretty effective tool again because it goes right to people on their phone, you know, and it goes right to their device, and they can they can set it up to be alerted to this. Like, hey, the hurricane center is going live now. Um, and then at times we would go to two two a day for when we sort of got into that watch warning phase and there was more information to provide to people. So I think it, it's a way to supplement the information we provide through our more traditional media pool with broadcast uh, television outlets. But again, it's just trying to meet people where they are. But again, the media pool was always sort of more restricted to the watch warning time frame. And we know now that people need information sooner. And if we're not out there in that space providing that information, then um, it's going to be filled in by something else. And so we want to make sure that we're getting our voice out there. Yeah, it's nice that you guys are making a more direct connection with um, the community because before it was kind of Hurricane Center, broadcast meteorologists, and then the viewers in the community. So it it seems like a much more direct approach. Yeah. And I think, again, they're complementary. Not everybody watches television, especially now. You know, we've seen huge demographic shifts, you know, there are, but there is still a huge contingent of people that do watch local television, especially in hazardous weather, big news scenarios. So we want to be in that space too, but this allows us to get out ahead of it and to be in a a slightly different uh, space in terms of uh, how to reach people. Um, Anything that didn't go well this year, anything you learned from this year that you'd like to adjust for next year? Well, there's always, there's always challenges. You know, I I mentioned we had, you know, track forecasting in 2023 was pretty challenging in the Atlantic. Um, Some of it was largely due, even some of the changes in our statistics were due in large part to just one storm, which was Tropical Storm Philippe, which lasted a long time and was very challenging to forecast. But that storm alone contributed a, a big chunk of the average track forecast years for the whole year. So one thing that was different in 2023 is we had a lot of weaker storms. As I mentioned, you know, we had 13 tropical storms that did not go on to become hurricanes. And weaker storms are typically more difficult to predict from a track forecast perspective. And uh, so we had some scenarios with Philippe where the, there were challenges forecasting the structure of the storm. And in particular, the steering flow was also complicated because we had systems that were moving more up into the mid latitudes and high latitudes where you can have accelerations and recurvature and you can get bigger track forecast errors than you do with storms that tend to remain in the deep tropics south of the ridge where the steering flow is a little simpler and the storm motion is not as fast. So there were some challenges there, Um, you know, intensity wise, we had some successes in forecasting the rapid intensification of Adalia. Uh, we were able to predict that about two days in advance. Again, getting the details right is hard, but we were able to anticipate that we were going to have a major hurricane landfall on the Florida Gulf Coast. So that was a success. But then you look at Otis, which was a tremendous uh, you know, forecast challenge and almost like a hyper rapid intensification where the storm increased in, uh, more than 100 miles an hour within 24 hours. And that's something that's just sort of beyond the scope of our, able, our, our ability to predict those kinds of changes. So that's a, that's a significant challenge there. I think, again, you know, just trying to to get the aircraft data out there and get that into the storm as soon as possible is, is very beneficial for the model. So we're continuing to try to do that. Uh, but again, the messaging focus is always trying to be on the hazards. You know, we're, we're always trying to you know, push people towards not the cone, not the track forecast, not worry about the category. But again, the rainfall, storm surge, wind, and, and really focus on those hazards because that's what actually kills people. Yeah, it's funny. You must feel like a broken record saying that. I feel like every meteorologist says that, but people still love yeah. the cone. They still want to see the cone and they want to see right. it first. <laughs> and they're used to it, you know, and, yeah. and, and I think that just goes, that's just a legacy to it because you know, 20 or 30 years ago, the forecasts were not great. And really, the only information we could really provide to people was about a track. Where was the storm generally going to go? We couldn't really forecast intensity very well. And because of the challenges with the track and the intensity forecast, it was hard to get specific about the hazards. Because if you don't know where the storm's going to go, it's hard to tell people where the storm surge is going to happen, what the rainfall is going to be, what the winds are going to be. 
But because those forecasts have improved so much in the last you know, 10 to 20 years, we can really now focus in on the hazards, which is, is where we want to shift the, 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 the messaging focus toward. And I think we're making progress. I, I really do. And part of that goes to communicating the watches and warnings effectively and then pointing people to these hazard-specific products. Yeah, I like the addition of um, like the storm surge map, too, because I feel like people like the cone kind of because it's this really easy-to-look-at map, right? Yeah. And watches and warnings maybe are a little bit more confusing. So the the storm surge map, I think, is really cool. I think people like to look at that, too. Yeah, that was a new operational product this year, again, to kind of give that sort of high-level overview of where the storm surge is going to occur, you know, what, what inundation is expected in a given area. And that was really, I think, successfully used a lot during Adalia. But even other storms, too, we had storm surge up into the mid-Atlantic states and the northeast during Ophelia. Uh, and uh, so I, I think, again, pushing those products out and, and getting the attention on those is, is a good thing. Speaking of communication, uh, we spoke in May about inclusivity of communication and different languages. And I noticed that the Weather Service, National Weather Service, is starting to use AI to translate yeah. into Spanish and Chinese. And I'm curious if the Hurricane Center is doing any of that as well. Are you using AI for any sort of translations? Yeah, we're going to be rolling out um, essentially Spanish translations of almost all of our tropical cyclone products in 2024. We actually have been testing this out in the background because the AI software is sort of a machine learning technique. So we've been automatically translating the products and then correcting them. And, and so then the AI learns, okay, this is the word you want to use in this situation. So the, the translations have gotten good enough that in 2024, we're going to provide them automatically on our website at hurricanes.gov. They're going to go out uh, as you know traditional text products as well. We actually even used it during Hillary in 2023. We used AI to translate the key messages into Spanish uh, for uh, Hillary's effects in, in Southern California and Baja California, Mexico, again, because of the uh, uh, you know large Spanish-speaking population there. You know, we've, we've done some translation, mostly manual, by the San Juan Weather Service Office of some of our Atlantic products for 20-plus years, but we never had any Spanish-language products in the Eastern Pacific where almost our entire uh, customer base on land speaks Spanish, and uh, and and there was there were service gaps in the Atlantic as well. So uh, this will really allow us, from a service equity standpoint, to provide you know uh, consistent levels of service in multiple languages, and maybe even expand beyond Spanish going forward. Cool. Yeah. Um. So I'm curious about when we talk about inclusivity and uh, diversity of communication, the Hurricane Center. If you look at pictures of the employees of the Hurricane Center, it's not historically diverse. So I'm curious if there's any sort of push to diversify the Hurricane Center itself. Yeah, I mean, I think if um, you know historically, the in general, the meteorological community has been very male and very white for a long time. We actually have a pretty diverse staff. If you look beyond it, as the, at the Hurricane Center as a whole, we have a lot of female staff. We have a lot of Hispanic or uh, Latino staff. Uh, we have the benefit of living in South Florida. We draw a lot of people from the community down here, uh, but a lot of people come from a lot of different places to work here at the Hurricane Center. And, you know, we're always interested in, in creating a diverse workforce that allows us to speak to the customers that we serve. And we serve everybody across the Atlantic Basin, across the Eastern Pacific Basin, not just in the United States. So it's important that we try to recruit and retain individuals uh, who have the cultural and diverse backgrounds that allow us to communicate effectively with everybody in our area of responsibility. And, you know, we, we make sure that uh, we try to recruit as wide, a, cast a wide net as wide as net as possible. 
Uh, you know, we're certainly not where we want to be in terms of diversity, in terms of recruitment and retention, but we are moving in that direction. Cool. Yeah, there's definitely the core problem of STEM fields in general. So it goes all the way down to communicating and recruiting, uh, you know, kids. kids. It starts with kids. Yeah. It starts with kids and and recruiting them into STEM fields uh, through, through junior high, high school, into college and universities, and then recruiting them into the workforce uh, and retaining them. And that's, uh, you know, it's, so it, it's not just one piece. You have to work the whole system. And, you know, we've we've taken some of our outreach uh, education efforts to uh, you know, under, historically underrepresented communities. We had the Hurricane Awareness Tour go to Jackson, Mississippi, which is home of uh, HBCU at Jackson State, was one of the first HBCUs to offer a degree in meteorology. And uh, so we were able to interact with not just the students and the faculty at the university there, but just the overall community. Uh, in that in that part of Mississippi. So again, those are the sort of the actions that we have to take as a community and as a as a work as a as a institution at the Weather Service to try to attract and recruit a, a more diverse workforce. Dr. Mike Brennan, thank you so much. How did your first year go? You like it? You good? Busy. You're gonna stick with the they're, job? They're all they're all different. <laughs> Every season is different. Every season provides you new lessons learned. And uh, you know, as we move toward the end of 2023, I think there's a lot to go back and look at and, and try to do better next year. But uh, but yeah, it's it's been an interesting few months and uh, looking forward to uh, to, you know, an off season, but an off season full of getting ready for 2024 and what that might bring. Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes publish every Tuesday. If you have a weather nerd in your life or someone that may just want to learn more about hurricanes, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show. You can also give me ideas for future episodes. Special thanks to Dr. Mike Brennan, Director of the National Hurricane Center, for joining me today. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day.